What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias is currently on vacation, but he will be back. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we have two unconventional children's movies made by unconventional creators working at the top of their fields and actively trying to push the envelope of their respective crafts. Both films are epic fantasies about kids who lose parent figures, make strange new animal friends, recover magical items, and face terrifying evil. In other words, they're both about characters on classic heroes' journeys. Genevieve, if you could uh, fold up those girl wings for just a sec, uh, I would like you to tell our listeners what we're talking about this week. Well, sure. We're all fans of Leica, the Portland, Oregon studio that produced the stop-motion pictures Coraline, Paranorman, and the Box Trolls. So we were particularly excited when we got the first teasers for Leica's new project, Kubo and the Two Strings. It's set in a mythical version of ancient Japan, where music is literally magical. There's a dragon in the moon, and origami creatures can walk and fight, if they're made by the right person. We had a lot of different options for pairings, and we spent such a long time debating different options that we eventually kicked it back to our fans on social media. We'll get to some of the other suggestions in this week's feedback session, but we finally decided on pairing Kubo and the Two Strings with Jim Henson's 1982 fantasy The Dark Crystal. The two films don't look much alike, and Kubo is a stop-motion animated film while Dark Crystal was shot in real time with puppets in elaborate costumes. 
but both films share a behind-the-scenes aesthetic, and both were made by small studios devoted to expanding what was possible in their medium. Leica CEO and director Travis Knight and Dark Crystal director Jim Henson actually have a lot in common. And both of these films share some central ideas about good versus evil, about how much scary stuff kids can handle, and about how big of an epic adventure you can fit on a tabletop. So here we go into some very small spaces that open up into some very big worlds. Another world. Another time. In the age of wonder. A thousand years ago, this land was green and good. Until the crystal cracked. For a single piece was lost, a shard of the crystal. Then strife began, and two new races appeared. The cruel Skeksis, the gentle mystics. Here in the castle of the crystal, the Skeksis took control. On the commentary track on the 25th anniversary edition of Dark Crystal, conceptual designer Brian Froud sounds kind of gleeful when he points out that the protagonist on screen isn't a puppet in many shots. He's a little person in a costume and mask. People often say Dark Crystal is wonderful because it's pure puppetry, Froud says on the commentary. And I say, the hell it is. That wasn't the point. What we did was use any trick we could use to make people believe in things. That quote particularly struck me because it's so much like something Kubo director Travis Knight told me when I went to visit Leica Studios earlier this year for a behind-the-scenes tour. Part of that tour involved watching before and after special effects sequences where an entire crowd of characters were computer-generated, where the stormy ocean around a struggling ship was entirely digital. Given Leica's reputation for doing everything it can with practical camera effects, I asked Travis if the company is using more CGI these days. And he said, We're not purists about stop motion. We love it, but within these walls, you have people that are giant, throbbing, NASA-sized brains that are inventing technologies. And then you have Luddites, people who are essentially still working with their hands, like artists and crafts people were a century ago. I love that convergence of different types of methodologies and people. I think it creates a ground for innovation. Both of these quotes are striking to me because Jim Henson and Travis Knight have gotten such reputations as throwbacks and diehards, going to the mat for one particular storytelling method that they do better than anyone else. And to some degree, that's a myth that we tell ourselves because it makes for a better story. That seems kind of appropriate since both of these creators are so heavily invested in myth-making and in tapping into something primal about fairy tales and magical stories. But just like Travis Knight, Henson was an innovator first and foremost. And by all reports, The Dark Crystal came more out of his desire to create new, bigger, more visually ambitious effects than out of a desire to tell one specific story. The Dark Crystal has a couple of clear genesis points. One came in 1977, when Henson signed a deal with Froud to start designing costumes and creatures and sets for The Dark Crystal, which he wouldn't start shooting for nearly another four years. The other came in 1978, when Henson and his daughter Cheryl were snowed in and sat down to create the world of The Dark Crystal. Note that Henson hadn't written a script at either one of those points. The look of the film came before the screenplay, and from everything I've read, it sounds like the creatures came before the story. The Dark Crystal is a swords and sorcery fantasy about a world where an evil bird-like race called Skeksis ruled the world from a dark castle dominated by a dark crystal that was broken a thousand years ago. According to a prophecy, a member of a race of gentle elf-like beings called Gelflings will heal the broken crystal and change the world. So the Skeksis have all but wiped out the Gelflings to preserve their power. Two of them are still alive, a boy named Jen, raised in a secret valley by a quiet four-armed race of people called Mystics, and Kira, a girl raised by simple dumpling-like people. (laughs) I mean, come on, they're simple dumpling-like people, guys. 
I've got a whole story about that. We'll get to it. Jen and Kara meet accidentally, and they're more or less forced by circumstance to try to fix the dark crystal for their own survival. It's a little hard for people who grew up on this film to understand this decades later, but when The Dark Crystal came out in 1982, that plot was the big sticking point for cultural critics. The film made modest money at the box office, but even though film writers raved about the visuals, they expressed disappointment with the story. Vincent Canby, writing for the New York Times, called it, quote, watered down J.R.R. Tolkien, unquote, and said it had, quote, no narrative drive whatsoever. It's without charm as well as interest, unquote. And even today, I'm not sure I'd recommend it as a film to adults who never saw it in childhood. You can see the craft on screen, but it still may be a movie you only really find magical if you first encountered it as a kid. And that's something I've read critics saying about Kubo and the Two Strings as well, that it's impeccably crafted, but that it's missing a certain narrative drive or intensity that would let its themes hit home as hard as Travis Knight and his co-creators at Leica would like. So we're going to look at what these two films do with their fantasy settings and how they do it, but we're also going to think a little bit about the craft that went into both films and ask whether it's possible it got in the way of the story. We'll be right back with that after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Out there's the great shaft of the castle. Position the reflector. The reflector will capture the beams of the dark crystal floating high above. Look into the reflector, podling. Feel the power of the dark crystal. the beam will rid you of your fears, your thoughts, your vital essence. So guys, what do you think about The Dark Crystal as a film? That's tough for me to answer because I am one of those people that saw this as a kid in the theater and uh, really liked it. But I don't think I'd seen it, gosh, since maybe once on home video after that. So it wasn't particularly fresh in my mind. But I was I think the craft is so strong here that 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 whatever shortcomings it has is a piece of storytelling. It didn't really bother me that much. I was very impressed to watch the film again. It is definitely a one of a kind film from a year that kind of produced a lot of other films like Blade Runner and such that, that were a little ahead of their time. Although this is I don't calling this ahead of its time might be even a little I think it's ahead of the curve fantasy-wise. I think it's bringing pretty straightforward fantasy storytelling to the screen in a way, like take a while for Lord of the Rings and such and uh, to catch up with it in terms of films. But um, just visually, it's it's like nothing else. Yeah, you kind of hit on all my big points there in the keynote, Tasha. So, you know, I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to go. The story is kind of... Wait, the, including the dumpling people? You were going to talk about Yeah, the actually, I, I brought one note to this entire recording. It just says dumpling people and big <laughs> Crayola crayons. No, I saw this film, I think, when I was too young to process it. Like, for all intents and purposes, I had not seen this film because it, my memory of it was so vague. So I was looking forward to, like, kind of filling in the holes of my memory that was really just kind of images, you know, of, of the sketch and the mystics and just those amazing puppet creations and watching it again 
now I was like, oh, this just didn't make sense to begin with. <laughs> That's why I didn't remember it. Well, on the one hand, it's a really elaborate fantasy world, but on the other hand, it is a very simple story. Exactly. It's, it's like Gelfin goes from point A to point B. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's and I think watching it in tandem with Kubo, it kind of highlights how they both kind of half-ass the hero's journey narrative and that they follow the hero's journey narrative but kind of skip past a lot of the big emotional beats that are required I think to make that narrative work like Jen and I think Kubo are not particularly great protagonists because you don't really understand what makes them tick or what drives them Um, I think that's kind of a big storytelling flaw the two films share to different degrees but you know as a piece of craft and it's just something to watch and marvel at and say how did they do that how does that work it's perfectly engaging from that standpoint and to an extent i would say the same of kubo um so it watching it is still like a totally worthwhile venture but it's probably not one you should go into expecting to get your mind blown from a storytelling perspective uh, Keith, I mean, we'll get to my feelings on it in a second. But Keith, just before we recorded, you were saying that uh, you probably wouldn't show this to your five-year-old mm-hmm. um, because you think it's too dark and scary for her. And I, that kind of brings up an interesting thing. If you have to engage with this movie when you're young in order to still find it you know, magical and a relatable fantasy story instead of a really interesting piece of craft – five is too young like when when is old enough when would you actually show it to your kids oh uh, i i mean i saw it when i was nine or ten which mm-hmm. is like maybe around the same time i started reading tolkien and c.s lewis so this was i was kind of primed for this or i was at the right age for this so perhaps that i don't know i think for a younger child as simple as the story is in many ways it's going to be just a lot of grim imagery and you know little creatures having their essences uh, sucked <laughs> out of them at one it's point very clockwork orange i thought the dog was going to die like i'd forgotten that the dog gets <laughs> gets kind of rescued at the last minute possibly in uh, post-production after you know a scene added in post-production i don't know uh oh, but, uh, i don't think so there's too much like on set with that happening i yeah. think for it to have been a last minute decision also it's jim henson he's yeah, not, gonna kill, he's, he's not gonna kill the dog that's true or whatever whatever we're calling this creature that's clearly there's it was clearly a cat you guys <laughs> I, I wondered if we were going to get into the dog cat thing after uh, pete's dragon last week its name is Fizzgig. it barks uh, it's a dog <laughs> it barks and it follows kira devotedly every yeah. She goes, yeah. it's a dog. Yeah. yeah. A cat would have said peace out long, long before. <laughs> yeah. I just wandered off to chase one of the million fuzzy little things scurrying yeah. around the landscape. Right. You know, I saw this film um, when I was kind of at the height of my, my Jim Henson obsession, when I basically just wanted to grow up to be a puppeteer. And... Like, I found it so magical when I was a kid. I got the novel and I read the novel. I I got the film once it was available and watched it enough times that watching it this time, I was surprised at how much of the dialogue I could have just recited from memory. Hmm. I had the soundtrack, which I loved and listened to all the time. Um, Recently, as an adult, uh, Archaea, I think, was the graphic novel company, came out with a series of graphic novels that were like the backstory of The Dark Crystal Hmm. that are about like the world before uh, everything happened. And it's really amazing how uninteresting it is to try to tell the story before the story in this case. So that that voice, that incredibly repetitive voiceover at the beginning of The Dark Crystal is just repeated even more in that backstory? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't even think about uh, hearing it in that voice, but now I'm going to have to go back and reread those books and uh, keep that in mind. I like that repetitive voiceover. It's, it, I mean, it's like poetry. It's, it's mm-hmm. deliberately repetitive. 
I guess the one question I would have that he's sort of like uh, uh, some, you know, expanding universe stuff can answer is like, how long ago was the Gelfling purge? Because it seems like it maybe took place a long time ago, and yet here's Jim and Kira hanging around. Yeah, that whole thing is weird. I mean, I kind of assume that Gelflings were a reasonably populous race, and you know that there was a huge purge, and then the survivors kind of lingered on because it's pretty clear that well, we also don't know how long Gelflings live. I mean, they're they're clearly based on elves. They like Jen could be two hundred and fifty years old and like still an adolescent. We might be getting to the minutia of this we, particular we, film. We also might be thinking more about it than they did. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Because that's the thing that like the more you dig into the story behind the story, the more you find out that Jim Henson was really deeply invested in how different kinds of puppets moved. Mm-hmm. How he was like one of his lifelong obsessions was how can you create a puppet that doesn't look like it's being puppeted, that doesn't look like it's on strings or has a wind up effect or has a person inside it and you see all of these little things the little rolling creatures and flapping creatures and things that pop up and down the giant bug like gartham like scuttling around on all of, all of their I tentacles those things. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry what's wrong with them just because they're giant insect like things like as big as a person don't want to think about it <laughs> you you can see all of his obsessions in this film but then you kind of you end up with some really large and basic story questions mm-hmm. that there's no way to answer. Let's talk about them, I guess. <laughs> well, what else? What else came up for you? Like, what else do you see as a story flaw? You know, not so much flawed, but in some ways, it just seemed like the mystical guiding force behind this is a little. It's it one's vague and kind of simple at the same time. You know, there's there's evil, but it's forceful and it's and it can actually get things done. And there's it's mystic good, and but they're also very you know slow and kind of weak willed. I don't know what comes of merging the light and darkness with this weird cosmology created because the, you know the mystics seem by far preferable <laughs> to the skexies. <laughs> uh, I guess they balance each other out. That's kind of the whole point. Yin and Yang, the cosmos is aligned once again, or whatever happens in this movie. But uh, I don't know if I necessarily want it spelled out anymore, but it's not all that satisfying the way it plays out. Yeah, the <laughs> I think just kind of the weird, almost semi-destructive simplicity of the story can kind of be boiled down to the word shard and how often they say they talk about this crystal shard and what do you do with the shard and what, what, what could you possibly do with this piece of a giant broken crystal? What could the prophecy be talking about? It's like, obviously, you put the shard into the crystal, guys. I mean, it's, this, this is not that difficult. And just like the hammering of this same point that was like a very kind of belabored, simple plot point. Put Tane in the sloppy. Yeah, exactly. But I almost feel like dwelling on this stuff is kind of beside the point with this movie because it is such I mean a... I was very distracted by the word shard, shard. in this viewing like, I'm, like if they say shard one more time I'm turning this off <laughs> oh, alright well the point the point I'm trying to make though is like I felt like I was watching like you know the covers of a bunch of 70s fantasy novels mm-hmm. come to life and to me that was that was something I enjoyed watching I mean I mean just even if the sort of the cosmos wasn't well developed or the characters all that compelling I, I did find watching these sort of like symbolic creatures walking through this landscape uh, mm-hmm. uh, quite lovely and, and quite the visual accomplishment. You talked about how Kubo and Jen both are kind of not humongously interesting protagonists. I like a lot of the tone of Jen. I mean, I, I think the kind of the tone of Jen is a, he's a very handsome creation. He's very quiet. He's very peaceful. Like the thing that makes him distinctive is 
playing little musical notes. But I mean, he's not really all that much of a hero, and yet he does these heroic things. That said, I'm wondering if part of the difficulty, part of the difficulty I've always had engaging with him is that his face is so rigid. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that, was that a distraction for you guys? Is that just me? Not really, because it seemed like kind of like a cartoon face in some ways. And and if it were more expressive, uh, it might be harder to identify with. Hmm. It was something I was willing to just kind of chalk up to the form of of the film. But, you know, yeah, I'll say that that it is a little bit of a problem in terms of just creating the emotional drive for Jen, specifically the part where he's watching his master die. And like that is supposed to be the inciting incident of this hero's journey and there needs to be some emotional drive behind it other than he was told to do it and I think kind of logically you connect the dots that his grief over his master's death is what's driving him but you don't necessarily see that grief play out in that scene and that is maybe at least partially due to the rigidity of Jen's face. Because I, I recall there being uh, several shots in that scene, that just kind of long, lingering shots of Jen's face. And it seemed like that he wasn't really doing much. It's like, mm-hmm. why, why are we watching him? And it, it's like, oh, he's emoting, but you can't actually see him emoting that, that well. There's a uh, one of the things on that Brian Froud commentary is he he says almost bitterly puppets don't really do much and he's kind of he's kind of talking about how you know you have to get in there and be responsible for animating you have to get the, get in there and be responsible for everything they bring across because they're not really capable of communicating I mean we think of Muppets as so expressive. Well, felt moves in a way that whatever material yeah. they're using for the faces here doesn't. Yeah, Jen is perhaps a little too humanoid for his own good. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's a gelfling slash elf, but maybe if he was a little more beast-like instead of human-like, it, it may have been easier to kind of exaggerate those features the way that the Muppets are. We should put a pin on this for part two of this discussion, too, because cause Kubo is super expressive. And mm-hmm. I actually find Kubo a much more satisfying protagonist, but we can get into that in, in part Yeah, we'll two. definitely get into that. Is it, speaking of that scene where Jen watches his master die and disappear, isn't it a little weird? You know, we got this film that Frank Oz is so heavily involved in as a puppeteer <laughs> and a voiceover. You see where I'm going with I this? I see where yep. you're going with 1982, this. 1983, we watched this exact same scene with Mark Hamill and Yoda, also voiced and operated by uh, Frank Oz, sits there and watches his master die and then disappear. And it's well, like they're too close together and both of them had too long of a lead time for one to have consciously copied the other. But that's just a really weird coincidence. It's how uh, wise old wizards uh, die. <laughs> well, just the way it works. I, I also got some uh, Star Wars universe flashes in, in the Podlings uh, mm. celebration, which was very Ewok-esque mm. uh, oh, as well. Wow, good point. Right down to the fact that they have like their own little yub yubby song. Yeah, yeah. Again, we're, we're dealing in, within like well-trod fantasy tropes. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's a direct line to be uh, drawn there, but it's an interesting echo. Yeah, it's just a, it's a weird coincidence. So I, I called them dumpling people. <laughs> they actually, it's just a random piece of trivia I picked up from Brian Froud. He designed them as potatoes. <laughs> like, I can see that. Literally, they, they had like four or five or six eyes a piece mm-hmm. and looked way more like potatoes. And then they tried it in puppet form and they decided it just didn't work you couldn't tell where they were where they were looking yeah and so they didn't have a personality so they had to dial back the potato tude so i'm curious 
we have been circling around and around the idea of dated on this podcast for a mm-hmm. while now. There are handmade things in this in this movie that I think really still hold up. And then there are special effects that really don't, you know, pre-digital uh, special effects like mm-hmm. matte effects uh, that are really visually obvious. And I'm curious how much that got in the way for you guys. Well, I mean, I'm the last person to admit something is dated, but what, what in particular stood out for you as, as not working uh, as well? I'm thinking of just some of the, the matte shots where it's very obvious that that one set of characters is matted in over the other. They've got like the big glowing outline that was such a problem in the films of the time. There are a couple of different places where it's just it's very obvious that there's a miniature set and characters shot at a different scale and and matted in, or two different uh, sets of characters shot at different times and matted. I mean, I, did, I wasn't taken. The, I wasn't really that taken out by it though, because it, 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 we're in this weird puppety world to begin with. So whatever distortions of, of reality are taking place there, it doesn't really take me out. I, I will say this. There's a scene I remember very clearly from when I saw it years and years ago. And that is when the Gelflings sleep off and the female Gelfling, Kira, spouts wings and says, you have wings? Like, I don't have wings. Uh, you don't, Of course not. You're, I'm a girl. A couple of things <laughs> about that. I remember that being like this really sweeping, they like fly all around and everything. And it's, they really don't. It really is just like a puppet being lowered down with, mm-hmm. with wings. Maybe in my mind, I kind of compensated for some of the limitations of the of the effects and and imagined as it, as it would be done now. It's kind of charming in its own way, though. The smallness, uh, smallness of that moment, I thought. I'll take your bait, Tasha. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot of the special effects don't look particularly great. Less so because they are the D word and just because when placed next to some of the physical effects that are happening, they look... And I know they're not lazy, but they look lazy by comparison. I'm thinking specifically of the big moment at the end where the Skeksis and the Mystics merge into their Urskeks. Is that mm-hmm. what they're called? Which look, I know this is an aside, but for as much as the Skeksis and the Mystics look alike, their merge form look nothing like either Except, of them. Well, well yeah. They're also the, not physical bodies anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, but that's kind of the point I'm making is that they just kind of merge from these incredible, big, lumbering puppets with physicality into these little like wispy projection type things and that may have been intentional but it just feels kind of like some of the air is being let out and then i think of that in comparison to a moment earlier in the film when the skeksis emperor dies and his he literally just dissolves from the inside and and crumbles and this it's this incredible effect that i have no idea how they did and i'm sure there's video out there somewhere of how they did it but i kind of don't want to know because it seems so magical and the same effect could be done on a computer in five minutes today, but it's so much more kind of wondrous watching that actual physical matter crumble in that way. So that scene at the end where it's just these kind of these special effect wispy ursex compared to something so physical as that, it, it, it just felt less spectacular in the literal sense of the word. Yeah, there is a lot of spectacle for spectacle's sake here. And I'm wondering, I mean, this would be a very different movie if it was paced like a movie today. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the fact that so much of the film is devoted to these kind of like long, there's the the shot at the beginning with Jen naked by the the river playing his his pipes. There's Jen and Kira's long trip down the river where you're kind of supposed to be admiring the scenery and like the creatures. There's so much just landscape in this Mm -hmm. film. And again, this is all about 
craft. This is all about Jim Henson wanting to create an environment and wanting to create all these little puppet creatures. Do you want less of that? If It would be a very different film with right. a very different pacing. Yeah, no, I, I, I like the pace of this film in, in, in that way. I, I liked all the shots of, of these puppets walking against real landscape or it's it's kind of kind of unclear to me there's a couple of shots were they actually shooting outside no it's a constructed landscape the um the river i believe is real but i i believe that the sort of the foreground um Mm -hmm. are constructed pieces those are some of my favorite shots in the film probably i'll I'll just um, say they are my favorite shots in the film of the the mystics kind of lumbering across the landscape and they're cut to two or three times it just there's no real reason to cut to them other than just to kind of revel in the majesty of these giant puppet creatures lumbering through this landscape. And it's a, it's a really neat thing that I wouldn't want to sacrifice in order to have the story move more quickly. That said, the story does move pretty slow sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the lumbering mystics never bothered me. I mean, the fact that we cut back to them over and over is to remind us. I, 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 They're I, coming very slowly. I, They're I love coming. Those, I love those things. I mean, I, honestly, the mystics are my favorite thing in the film. They're lined faces. They're just so deeply and heavily lined. They look so worn. But you get these like extreme close-ups on them. And they they still look real. They look like they look so much more like actual creatures to me than Jen does. And I, like I love their weird faces and their their weird Brian Froud patterning. Like he's just he's really into like Celtic knots and like complicated whorls, which you see on the uh, on the Ursex at the end. There's a thing in the commentary where he's just complaining, complaining, complaining about how. <laughs> Uh, how those things look nothing like what he wanted them to look really? like. Yeah, mm. uh, he was promised a bunch of special effects. Like if you look at the front of them, there are all of these spiral patterns in their clothing, and the spiral patterns were supposed to be like alive and moving, and that was just a special effect that they never did. And he's still bitterly disappointed about it. <laughs> C- circling back to the, you know, digging into this mythology that may not have been that well thought out to begin with, but you you just reminded me of it, which is the clothing on the Skeksis. I felt like there was more there that wasn't addressed. I mean, the Skeksis, you know, their bodies are the way they are and they're clothed the way they are in order to disguise the operator inside inside of them. But there's that scene when the Chamberlain is banished where they strip him of his clothes. And I, I did read something about how the Skeksis are all kind of supposed to represent different vices and their clothings are meant to represent that. And I think that could have been something really cool in a, a neat story solution to a design problem, but it's just not really addressed in any satisfying way. As I said, I was just really fascinated by this world, and I read the novelization over and over, and the novelization has more detail about some of the background stuff. I don't know how you would get that into the movie without slowing it down. Yes, they're like they were originally designed around the seven deadly sins, and then they ended up with more of them. And I think the mythology in the mythology there were originally sixteen of them, but like over time, some of them degraded and some pairs were lost. So by the time you have a thousand years later, you have the movie. There are only nine of them, but each one of them has a purpose, and that's why they all look different. And that's why one of them manages the slaves, and one of them manages the Gartham, and one of them manages the science lab, and the Chamberlain just hangs around the emperor. And makes weird whimpering <laughs> noises like they each have a duty and then the weird thing is the mystics also each have kind of a corresponding like nature version mm-hmm. of that yeah. so like the ritual master which is the one that keeps waving the knife around and saying we've got a killer that's the mm-hmm. that's our law like there's a corresponding mystic ritual master who's the one like doing the sand mandala at the beginning there's always a like a harsh 
patterned evil version of this concept and then like a soft nature version of this concept. And that's something that just doesn't come across right. at all. Yeah, I think it just kind of speaks to the the greater theme of this moving movie. And I, I think it comes up in how often we are invoking Brian Froud's name as opposed to the writer of the film, who is David Odell, with obviously a story by Jim Henson. It's a concept movie, like a concept album. Like it's it's a broad idea and very kind of fixated on the minutiae that represent that idea, but it doesn't necessarily tell a detailed narrative. That's a really cool comparison that I hadn't thought of. And I, I think you're right. And I also think that it kind of explains a lot tonally about where the film is, because it, it does kind of have the feel of one of those big 70s prog rock uh, concept <laughs> albums that's kind of telling a fantasy story sort of right you know that's more about the concept and execution than necessarily that story you can't map out the story all the details of it well i mean tasha you can answer this better than anyone i think here at least but this is really a huge departure from what henson had been doing before i mean i know he'd taken he'd taken stabs at this kind of story elsewhere if i'm not mistaken but i mean this is someone who is used to dealing in short sketches and characters that you know are there for for five minutes max i guess versus this, this sprawling story across a single world. I mean, do you feel like maybe there's there's sort of some growing pains that we're seeing on the screen or do you feel like this is a complete vision that he saw through for as as he wanted it to be? No, I think you're exactly right when you when you say it's growing pains. Mm. I mean, he started this film with Brian Froud. Like he he went to Brian Froud and kind of laid out the vague concept of what he wanted and signed a contract with him and then he went away and made the Muppet movie mm-hmm. and The Great Muppet Caper. All of the concept work for Fraggle Rock happened before the film, the the show itself came out after, but uh, there was just so much work done in here. He had his hands in a lot of projects. And what was going on behind the scenes at the time was the Muppet Show had become a huge, huge hit. And basically he had, he started out in advertising and he spent a decade trying to break into being able to do fiction. And it was a constant struggle for funding. It was a constant struggle to find backers. And when the Muppet Show finally hit, suddenly Big Bird was on the cover of Time magazine and Jim Henson was a superstar. I mean, he was making money with his advertising and he was getting attention for like the Muppets on the Ed Sullivan show and the TV specials that he was doing that were spinoffs of those. He had popularity. He didn't have cachet. Mm. And Dark Crystal came directly out of the fact that he made the Muppet show and all of a sudden he was famous. He had a lot of money and he had people coming to him and saying, what next? What do you have next? What can we do that's different? And he was like, I've got stuff that I want to do that's different. I want to do these bigger, more expansive, more ambitious things. And I feel like Dark Crystal was partially a result of trying to do too many things at once and partially a result of having this gigantic ambition and trying to kind of realize it around all of the other projects that were going on at the time. There's also, apart from a couple of moments and the little yippee, not dog, whatever we're going to call, whatever we call that Fizz thing. Fizz gig. Fizz sorry. The, it's almost consciously not funny. There aren't gags. There aren't jokes. And, and the characters, as endearing as they are, they aren't really comic characters. The, of course not. Uh, you're a boy is kind of a, a joke. Yeah. Oh. That's, that's, that, that that's is probably one, the, the one the, joke, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just remember that is like hitting like a ton of bricks as a punchline in the theater and maybe it's because the film was just so solemn Mm -hmm. for most of it I mean, as you say, it's it's pretty grim stuff for kids. Grimmer than I remember it, and, and grimmer than I, really most kids. I can't think of a grimmer, flat-out 
kids movie insofar as this even is a kids movie and in some ways it's a high fantasy movie that just happens to have puppets in it i wonder if he had pressed forward in this direction the future such films would have had more of a balance because it's not like jim henson doesn't do humor well i mean henson is that's probably what he does best with, with puppets I, I wonder if a little bit more of that kind of lightness and, and airiness might have uh, found its way into a future such film well, that's what we got with Labyrinth. I mean, sure. I was wondering when Labyrinth, I, I actually have Labyrinth pulled up on which, my screen which, which because I, I knew we were going to get there. <laughs> I haven't seen for uh, as much as the, you know, Ever? yeah, as for wow. as many like 80s genre films as I've, as I've seen and, and as much as I love David Bowie, I've never seen that movie. Man, it's almost like you weren't a teenage girl in the 1980s. I, I always think of your line about how it, it kickstarted puberty. <laughs> for a lot, <laughs> for a lot of women. For a lot of women. I, like, I'm not sure I was there personally, but that is the kind of thing when you get a bunch of women over the right age and some alcohol together Mm -hmm. that movie comes up and it comes up in that context a lot and it is just very funny to me but from everything i've read labyrinth was the direct result of of henson saying here's what worked and what didn't work on dark crystal here's what we need to improve and with labyrinth they sat down and they worked out the story first they worked out the themes first they worked out what they wanted to say and then they developed the world and in the puppets and and they put people into it. Yeah, it's not it's not puppets only. No, it's it's got people that are specifically supposed to be relatable. You know, you're focused on their faces. It's mm-hmm. got it's got a human protagonist and a human antagonist, and then the puppets just kind of fill in the world around it. I don't know whether I would tell you to see it or not. I I also saw that film at pretty much the exact right age. I mean, I was the age of the protagonist when I saw it. I saw it in college for the first time and loved it. So I think you could. I'll get around yeah. to it. I, I, I don't think you have to worry about it jumpstarting your puberty, though. <laughs> yeah. That you wasn't... might have to worry about it jumpstarting your daughter's puberty. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, uh, if she if she likes fantasy stories at all, somewhere in the like 13 to 16 age range is like the time to see them. Sure. So we're coming across as, as very down on Dark Crystal. We're which... not. <laughs> Aren't we? I mean, no, I'm, no, no, absolutely not. Okay, so tell me what you're not down on. What, oh, what do you find memorable about this film? What do you like about this film? Um, I, I, I like the tone of it a lot. I mean, it can be a little pokey and, and, as we said, humorless. But you know, I, I basically enjoy the world of these films and, and the creatures. I find, I, especially the Skeksis and the Mystics, really impressive creatures, and, and in some ways, a lot more animated and understandable than Gelflands. Like I, I like the Chamberlain's whole arc of being, you know, ambitious and then being humiliated and then and then being, you know, sneakily trying to ingratiate himself to the Gelflins. Like, that's, that's a fairly complex character. And that's one of my favorite Frank Oz vocal performances, too. That that weird, whiny... Hmm, I, again, I won't even attempt to do it. But, but, <laughs> but, I, but I like that a lot. And there's just moments in this film, like, I... Kind of like I said before, but 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 you know I was being shown something I had not seen anywhere else before, like the land striders, those like, like those giant four legged sloth like creatures. That's just a a beautiful thing to watch the Gelflings ride through this really elaborate landscape on those. I mean, that's you, you show me that, and you're, you you've already won me over uh, for for much of the film. Have you ever seen the behind the scenes, like either the making of Doc or just like the any of the behind the scenes TV stuff? that shows you what what's inside those suits. No, but I know what's inside those suits. Isn't no. that amazing? Uh, th- that's it's interesting because when I watched this movie with uh, some friends of mine, everyone kind of picked out the Landstriders is not that impressive because no, I it, love the Landstriders. because it was you could clearly see the people in it if you are familiar with the rig that they are using, which this film may have originated. I don't know, but it's something that has been probably most notably in The Lion King on Broadway. It's uh, used a lot, this uh, kind of quadruped uh, mm. human puppet uh, rig, and it's... 
it's been used in a lot of like kind of big live productions and having seen that once you can't really unsee it when you see the land striders it's worth seeking out the behind the scenes stuff just to see people without the costumes on doing that Mm. like their legs are on stilts but then they're like leaning forward almost horizontal to the ground and then their their hands are also on stilts and they're Mm -hmm. just walking around like that and it's i mean it's terrifying it looks like they're going to fall and die i mean it's incredibly impressive from a performance perspective according to froud's commentary he's the one who came up with it like yeah. he, uh, I was wondering if this is where it originated. Yeah, you know, somebody, somebody on staff. Well, he, you, I mean, there's always a parallel evolution. They may have been the first to do it, but other people may have created it, or other people may have created it earlier or in different ways in other places. But yeah, he apparently somebody, one of the puppeteers came onto the set and was talking about his stilts, and Froud wanted him to bring them in and stilt around so he could mm-hmm. see it. And then he was like, "Could you, could you lean forward?" And the guy's like, "Yeah, but that's incredibly dangerous." And he said, "Well, could you?" lean forward if you had hand stilts and then they presented that to uh, to henson and were like can we build a puppet around this and henson was incredibly excited i feel like that's the one of the genesises of my fascination with henson behind the scenes is seeing a tv special where they they talked about that and they showed behind the scenes footage of that and it focused entirely on henson's fascination with finding new ways to make puppets move those things are so strange and wonderful to watch i think mm-hmm. what else what what connects with you about yeah the film? I, I mean I, I think we've talked enough about how impressive the skexies and the mystics are so i i did want to kind of draw attention to some of the smaller puppets and how they kind of inhabit this this landscape i'm thinking specifically of the, the little fuzzball uh rodent like things which i guess are called crawlies uh the first couple times i saw them like kind of flip through the background I, I thought it was maybe a mistake or something and then i realized like oh they're just like mice or something and then the scene during the climax where uh kira calls on all the animals that apparently the skexies have imprisoned to kind of rise up and, and fight for her there's just a really great variety of different types of puppets and i think just seeing all those different different types and sizes of puppets just drives home the thought that was put into this world right down to like the little rodents skittering across the floor you know when we were talking just a minute ago about like whether we were being hard on this film or not like the word i keep coming back to is impressive it's a very impressive thing to watch because you are just kind of focusing on all the effort that went into it and that is fun to watch in its own way but it's not necessarily affecting the way that film can be affecting i think a small touch like all these little crawlies or you know appreciating all the different types of puppets it kind of plays into that impressive feeling you're impressed by all the thought that went into this even if you're like not really touched by it i think that's really the best way to put it is and frankly i had the same problem with kubo and we'll get to that but there's so much visible effort on the screen. There's so much visible thought and and craft and attention to detail on the screen. It's a little disappointing when you don't feel the same kind of like emotional connection that you know you're expected to have. You don't feel affection for it. Like you feel the maker's affection for their world, but it doesn't translate onto you as a viewer. I feel affection for the makers. Yeah. yeah. Like for making (laughs) that thing. Right. (laughs) But I don't necessarily... Good job, people who made this. Yeah. Well, 
yeah. I mean, I, I have a I have a really I feel a really personal connection to Jim Henson that I do not always feel to every one of his works. Mm. I just I admire the the breadth of what he does, the ambition of what he does, and just like the goodness, like the kindness behind what he does. And that doesn't always necessarily translate into loving, you know, the actual product. You know, what I do love here, though, is Billy Whitelaw's voice as Agra. That's just something I've, <laughs> I've always connected with. She's such a strange figure in this film. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, she's like, she's kind of your standard, uh, standard issue Oracle, Sybil character. You know, you come along into the hero's journey, deliver some information, be weird and uh, wise and obscure all at the same time. But she's also got like visible nipples and like a really fat ass and like an incredibly gross eyeball gripped in an incredibly gross hand with like filthy fingernails and peeling skin i mean somebody put a lot of effort into making her kind of disgusting and i love that vocal characterization so much you know i think would have improved this movie cameos from steve martin edward bergen Maybe Charles Grodin. Uh, should they have just popped up to every time somebody said, uh, I don't know what to do with this crystal shard. What if I throw it at the crystal and miss? Somebody should have popped up and said, myth? <laughs> yes? Uh, hey, is, is that Twiggy? Oh, dear. Okay, well, we're definitely winding down here a little bit on Dark Crystal, but there's still more to talk about. We'll be right back to talk about some of the other films that readers suggested we should pair with Kubo for this episode and to talk a little bit about the options that we had to reject because this podcast cannot be a 25-hour podcast. First, word from our sponsor. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. We wound up pairing Kubo with Dark Crystal because they had so much in common behind the scenes, including directors who started out in advertising and created their own studios to do creative work, and then insisted on staying as hands-on as possible with their projects instead of taking backseat management positions. But we also had a lot of other suggestions from readers as well, and many of them would also have made great pairings. Um, Are there any that particularly stand out for you guys? Yeah, I mean, one I was I really, uh, maybe I should have pushed for, maybe we'll do it some other time, is, is Kwaidon, uh, which is this Japanese film from 1965 by Masaki Kobayashi. And it is an anthology film of four different, I want to say horror stories, but more like more like spooky folk tales. And, and uh, it'd be interesting for a couple of ways, because all of them take place in very stylized worlds, not unlike Kubo. And there's sort of an East meets West thing going on, too, where they're adapted from stories collected by a man known, among other names, as Lafcadio Hearn, who was sort of this this Greek kid who came to America, 
uh, became a journalist, went to Japan, and uh, published uh, Japanese folktales. But I think there was some kind of a question as how much personal embellishment is in it. But that, anyway, the movie's gorgeous. The movie is just sort of this this haunting each each section better than the last in some in some ways. Uh, so yeah, I feel like I'm I'm already doing my next picture show <laughs> recommendation <laughs> here. But quite I would have been great. Wasn't that Sam Adams' suggestion? Um, was it Sam's? Yeah, yes. it was Sam's. Yeah, uh, yeah. That um, hat that tip alone, to Sam Adams. Like that alone made me want to made want to do it. I've never seen quite on. Oh, well, my recommendation isn't good enough for you, but Sam Adams recommends. I believe that Sam Adams recommended <laughs> this film. That what's his face across from me was talking about. Uh, Genevieve, anything particularly stand out for you? Uh, well, several people uh, made the suggestion, which we also discussed before throwing this question to uh, Twitter and Facebook, looking at Coraline because of the Mm -hmm. obvious Laika connection there. And I think we're all fans of Coraline, and I think we all would have liked discussing that movie. But I guess for me, kind of one of the main sticking points of doing that movie is that it's so informed by Neil Gaiman's uh, sensibility, I think. And just in terms of Kubo being such a pure Laika movie, it felt like it would be a weird jumping off point as a comparison. But there's definitely a lot going on in Coraline that maybe we'll be able to talk about on a future show for some reason. But yeah, another problem with doing Coraline is just, I mean, that's a Henry Selleck directed movie. And there's, there's a lot of kind of undercurrent that you can pick up about how Selleck and uh, Laika got along. Brilliantly. Mm, Not so brilliantly. Well, I mean, he left the studio after that. And there was apparently a lot of negative feedback. He was it's it's so hard to tell in a situation like this. Is this their negative feedback because uh, there is in any workplace and anytime you have somebody with the high standards forcing people to live up to them, you're going to have some people who are angry and don't like that? Or was he a cruel taskmaster who didn't care about the people under him and uh, and worked them to the bone in pursuit of like tiny details that didn't necessarily make a difference to other people? Mm-hmm. Like you can find kind of both of those reactions online. And we don't know what the truth is. Maybe we uh, should have had that discussion the week that Scott wasn't here because it's all extra textual. Oh, it's all extra textual. I mean, this entire conversation with Dark Crystal Kubo is kind of heavily extra textual. So, yeah, yeah, Scott. (laughs) But that, I mean, I think it would have been interesting just to see kind of how Laika's developed over the the past 10 years. For me, one of the reasons to hold back on Coraline is that those movies to me are just too close together visually aesthetically and in time Mm. you know that's a fairly short time period for a film a studio that can only come out with a film every two and a half years or so yeah we we did pixar early pixar versus late pixar it felt you know the big leap and and the films were different enough Uh, and uh this this didn't feel quite right yeah and i mean that was only 15 years instead of 10 but the technology changed so much Mm -hmm. and that it hasn't made as much of a difference for like a we also got a suggestion that we do James and the Giant Peach for the stop motion, which is mm-hmm. a, a really interesting thought. I think someone suggested Nightmare Before Christmas. Basically, any stop motion animated uh, film was, uh, was I think, suggested at some point. We talked about yeah. doing Jan Svankmeyer's Alice. Yeah, we'll give everyone nightmares uh, <laughs> talking about that one. Uh, someone suggested Jason the Argonauts, the Ray Harryhausen uh, stop motion adventure, which uh, or any of them would have been, been good. I'm hugely fond of those movies, and that would have been a lot of fun. Here's one that we got from Facebook that uh, I really like the argument for. Mulan might be interesting since they're both examples of Western animation studios adapting concept from Eastern stories. They also both prominently feature swordplay and parental relationships. Also, while both are examples of animation, they're completely different types of animation, which would let you comment about the unique effects of each approach. 
I mean, that's what we like to see is people not just throwing out titles, but like making work. coherent arguments mm-hmm. for them. And that was a really good one. On the other hand, Mulan, like it's got some really strong moments. And then in some ways, it's kind of it's semi forgettable Disney. Yeah, uh, Mulan was actually one of the very first things that came to my mind. But I, uh, I don't think I even bothered suggesting it because I was like, I don't think anyone likes Mulan all that much. And I but I actually do like Mulan quite a bit. But um, I think there are a lot of problems in that movie that i didn't necessarily want to get into on this podcast mm. but it's got songs by the guy who did uh, break my stride and one of the songs is i'll make a man out of you mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite latter-day uh, disney songs yeah, we can have a sing-along after this because it's one of my favorites too <laughs> i've only seen that one once a long time ago i should watch it again there were some other interesting uh, suggestions for films that have to do specifically with the power of storytelling, uh, like Terry Gilliam's Baron Munchausen, um, The Fall, which is a big favorite <laughs> we're, film we're, of mine. We're going to do The Fall at some point, just because this is a, uh, a podcast with Tasha Robinson. Tasha made us sign a contract before starting this podcast that we would eventually talk about The Fall. I don't know what we're going to pair it with. Maybe the, the next time that Tarson makes a really good movie, so you won't have to worry about that contract coming up. Um, Millennium Actress is also a an anime film that's very specifically about the the power of self-mythologizing and storytelling. And it have, is, I mean, it's a Japanese movie. It's got a heavy Japanese influence, obviously. So, like, all of those, I think, are, are really interesting conceptual things. We, it, basically, we love the suggestions. Those are great. Yeah, thanks, thanks we, for, we, to everybody who participated. We ignored all of them. Oh, and Princess Bride, <laughs> Princess Bride. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. I think those are all films we might do. It I, w- I would have loved to do a conversation on Princess Bride, but I, I think the connection might have been just a little bit too tenuous mm-hmm. there because it's like story within a story and fantasy in terms of Fairy tone tale. though it would be the exact opposite direction from, yeah. the, from the dark crystal it would yes we'll talk about princess bride someday or just like just really i think that's inconceivable <laughs> all right <laughs> anyway so thanks to everybody who participated we did really appreciate it and we did in fact think about and uh, talk about these uh discussions despite what keith just said um as always we do appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773 773- Two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Uh, you can also, obviously, in this case, talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow or on Twitter at twitter.com slash nextpicturepod. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll set aside one kind of puppet and pick up another kind as we look into the craft of Kubo and the Two Strings and how 3D printers and molded resin compared with felt and glass eyes when you're telling an epic story. You'll also get to hear this. I think I had to stretch to go full sucker punch with this one. <laughs> that is not, there's not a lot to suggest that I was going to say St. Elsewhere, but yeah, you know. I was thinking of that too. Pick your yeah. reference. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash next picture show follow us on twitter at at next picture pod so you'll always know when a new episode drops until then the good part of the story is coming up so if you must blink do it now (laughs) 